That's the time we move against him. We'll have to take over the ship. We're talking about mutiny, Scotty. Aye. Bridge to all decks. It is Journey's End on Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I actually am Scott Mance living in the body of Steve Morris. You will be silenced. You will be silenced. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, Enterprisers who've been with us since the cage, we are at that point. We have come to the end of our deep dive on the original Star Trek series. I cannot believe we are at this point. Time truly does fly when you are having fun. And I've never had more fun doing anything than doing a weekly deep dive of the original Star Trek in production order with my great pal, Steve Morris. Steve, how do you feel about this moment right now? I think the weirdest thing is that this thing that is seminal in both of our lives for the 50 plus years of our lives actually is so small. You know, that it's 80 episodes and we've gone through all of them in the most minute detail in a year and a half. You know, it's funny because like you're right, because we watch these we rewatch these episodes, not all of them, but certain ones over and over and over and over again. Star Trek has been a part of our life for like as almost as long as we can remember. But yet, because we did this deep dive in episode order like this, you realize just how. Small it is. Yeah. Three seasons. That's not a lot. Well, and and I and you have a much better memory for me for, for this kind of stuff than I do, but if you were to take your least favorite Star Trek episode, how many times do you think you watched it? The least favorite? Yeah. Oh, probably like maybe two or three or four times. Oh, really? Yeah. Because I wa- I wa- I'm sure I watched the least favorite 10 or 20 times. Oh, I see. Because I watched it every time it was on, mm-hmm. and I watched it every afternoon for from the time I was seven until I was 20, staying up at 11 o'clock and watching it then. So I still watched them. Yeah, I, I just, when we when, like when we got to like the Mark of Gideon, uh, that's an episode I, I really don't remember watching a whole lot yeah. at all. And, and when we did our deep dive on it, uh, in addition to realizing why I didn't rewatch it, I just uh, realized... You know, maybe I didn't see all these episodes as many as times as I thought I did, except for obviously the popular sure. ones. Sure, but that what that means, even what whatever the numbers are, you and I have spent a thousand hours watching Star Trek. You mm-hmm. you more than me, I think. Right. You know, because yeah. there are episodes that you say you've watched over a hundred times. That's massive hunks of our lives yep. spent watching these eighty hours of TV. I mean, even after we recorded our deep dive on all our yesterdays. I still rewatched that episode later that day. You did. Just because I just realized, <laughs> well, for a couple of reasons. Um, one, because I got more out of out of the episode after the conversation we had with with Adam Nimoy, our guest star, but also because I just really loved the episode and wish that had actually right. been the last episode of the series. Even though it kind of was in start date order, but instead of the episode we're about to talk about. But Steve, there there are a few things I I, I need to say before we get into the deep dive. And these are things that we usually say for the end of the show, but I think in this case, it's important to say it at the beginning, because in addition to saying a thank you so very, very much to all of the Enterprisers who've been with us since day one, to all of the Enterprisers who we have welcomed aboard over the course of these uh, last year and a half and have discovered us along the way, we are, we are very, very grateful for your support. 
for your feedback, for posting on our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents, and especially for posting reviews on Apple Podcasts. And the reason I bring that up is because at this moment, we are at 295 reviews on mm. Apple Podcasts. So right now, push pause on this podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts, and write a review for Enterprise Incidents. Help us get past the 300 mark. So if you've been thinking about doing a review, but you just got busy or you forgot about it or you thought, oh, I'll get around to it, now would be just such a great time to post that review for us on, on Apple Podcasts. Help us get past 300 reviews. Also, like we've been pointing out in more recent episodes, if you want to be generous and, and give us a donation on uh, Anchor for as little as 99 cents a month or $4.99 a month or even $9.99, not $9.99 a month. You know, please do that too, because this has definitely been a big, big labor of love, but it has been a labor. We put a lot into this and we are so grateful that you're happy listening. And Enterprise Incidents will continue. We will have more information on that at the end of this episode. But uh, you think of it as a tip jar, uh, just a little way of saying thank you for, for listening to Enterprise Incidents. And, and, and a thank you, goes to my good friend Steve Morris because Steve Morris really kind of followed up with me quite a number of times over the course of about two years saying, we really should do a podcast on the original series. And I was either busy or I thought, what are we going to do that's different? Well, we figured that all out. But this, this whole experience, this whole journey through the original series has done a number of things. First of all, it has been great, great fun looking at the show as a serialized show. It has made me see the series in a whole new light, and it, is all, it has also made me love Star Trek more than I ever thought possible, and I didn't think that was possible. So right now, live on Enterprise Incidents, I'm giving Steve Morris a gift, which I want him to open right now, live on Enterprise Incidents. So let me, let me first say that here's the emotions I just went through. Okay. It's like, I'm listening to Scott. Yes, I agree with that. Yes, more reviews. Yes, oh, support the show. That's great. And then there was this pause that he made, and he started to reach to his bag. And I went, oh, <laughs> <laughs> because I was like, I didn't get Scott anything. You didn't need to because what you gave me was Enterprise Incidents. And the second thing, based on the weight of this, I might have a guess of what this is. Well, I think everybody listening. And you said you were not ever going to bring this up again in our last episode. That is correct. Um, that is correct. I am so, truly touched. I got to put my mic down so okay, I can open Okay, so, so I'm going to talk you through as Steve opens this. He had to put his mic down. You can probably hear the crinkling of the wrapping as he is opening this gift, which is a big, generous thank you for not just all of the incredibly hard work Steve Morris has done editing Enterprise Incidents. He does all of that, but for being a great partner, a great friend, a great new friend. So, of course, he is now holding in his hand Photo novel number three, The Trouble with Tribbles. And that is one of 12 photo novels in this box. That is, that's amazing, Scott. Thank you so, so much. I, I mean, truly knew it was coming. I really, I really didn't. I really <laughs> didn't. As soon as you reached to your bag, I, I, then I knew it was coming. <laughs> but I did not know it was coming. Though. I mean, like every time we did an episode that had a photo novel counterpart, after a certain point, I went, you know what? I got, I got to. I got to pay it forward. I, he's got to have these, you know. So, so what I will say is these books are almost 50 years old. So be careful with them. But 
Congratulations. You are now the proud uh, owner of a complete set of Star Trek film I'm, novels. I'm truly touched, and I'm going to have to figure out a great way to display them or store them. And and I, honestly, I, you know, you've made a real investment in me, and I think this is another reason that people have to contribute to the show <laughs> in order to support this incredible gift that I just got. Well, listen, this has uh, just been such a great experience, and we are going to continue this experience. Like I said, please tune in at the very end as we make announcements as to what will be next on Enterprise Incidents, which will continue. But right now, yes, we are on the very last episode filmed, the last episode that aired. So, Steve, what have been your thoughts over these years about the notorious, the infamous Turnabout Intruder? It's a weird one, and I'll tell you why, which is that I've never particularly liked the episode. And you had kind of said, you know, it's maybe better than you think a couple of times. And watching it this time, I went, you know what? This actually is much better than I thought, except thematically, I hate it. That the, that the basic way the ideas are framed, I absolutely hate. But the it's like the opposite of, there are a bunch of episodes where I'm like, wow, that was an incredible idea. I wish they executed it better. And this is like, I hate this idea, mm -hmm. but they actually executed better than I had thought they did. And there's some genuinely good moments throughout the show with good performances and good stuff going on. So I don't know that I like the episode, but if I can detach myself from some of what I think it's saying, it's actually okay. That's a really good way of putting it because this is a, just like so many of the latter third season episodes that we covered. Turnabout Intruder is another episode that I just have not seen very often over the years. It's definitely not one that I've watched recently. It's certainly not one that I will put on just, hey, I feel like watching a great classic episode of Star Trek. Turnabout Intruder never comes close to being the episode that I'm going to put on. But of course, we had to rewatch for our deep dive of it and rewatching it. I, I agree with your assessment. Uh, it is definitely not nearly as bad as sort of history has made it out to be. Uh, certainly, I think if there's any one person who deserves credit for making this episode as good as it is, it is absolutely William Shatner. And we'll get into all that. But at the same time, there are things about this episode that I think you're alluding to that make me wish that I could erase this episode from existence. Mm. And the reason for that is because Star Trek had always been such a progressive show, a forward-thinking show, a groundbreaking and trailblazing show, whether it was having someone like Nichelle Nichols on the bridge of the Enterprise or having a woman, you know, in a, as a Starfleet ambassador in Metamorphosis or having a Romulan commander being a woman in the Enterprise incident. And then the very last episode of the series, Gene Roddenberry himself kind of, you know, took a step back because he wrote this story of all the people to sort of lean into these ideas the execution of it being just like cringe-inducing by today's standards, the fact that it came from the pen of Roddenberry himself is shocking to me. I thought it was cringe-inducing. I don't know when I first thought it, but certainly by the time I was 11 or 12. And I mean, and I'm a kid who grew up in California in, you know, Marin County, and my parents went to Berkeley. And so, you know, obviously I had that liberal background, but it's it kind of really clearly says things about women and that, that I really don't like. But the other thing about that is that after this episode aired, when, when it seemed like Star Trek was going to fade into oblivion before the fans got a hold of it and the sy syndication like we did, 
Star Trek quickly did an about face. Yeah. Uh, certainly up to this day. Uh, we'll get into all that. But in the meantime, it's worth pointing out that love it or hate it, Turnabout Intruder is Star Trek history. I mean, all the episodes are history, but this is the last episode, and that makes it history. The episode was directed by Herb Wallerstein, who had directed Whom Gods Destroy, That Which Survives, and the second half of The Tholian Web. The story was written by Gene Roddenberry. So the very, talk about coming full circle in terms of like putting pen to paper, so to speak. Roddenberry wrote The Cage, and he wrote the very last episode, Turnabout Intruder. The teleplay was written by Arthur Singer, who was the story editor for the third season, who rewrote a lot of the other teleplays that were written by other people. Uh, but Roddenberry submitted his story outline on April 22, 1968. He proceeded to a third revised story outline on May 8th. Months later, on December 1st, Arthur Singer did his first draft teleplay, uh, and then uh, by December 20th, he did his final draft. He did a script polish. And then Fred Freiberger did his own script polish, his revised final draft, on December 20th, 1968. So this is interesting. So the episode was filmed between December 31st, 1968, New Year's Eve, and January 9th, 1969. So that makes this the only episode to have filmed into 1969. It was a seven-day production, so it went one day over schedule. It was the 80th episode to film, of course, uh, if you include The Cage, but it was the 79th episode to air because The Cage had not aired yet, and it was aired on June 3rd, 1969. So here's the thing that makes this interesting. Mm. So All Our Yesterdays had actually aired uh, back in March, uh, March 21st, 1969. Turnabout Intruder was supposed to air the following week on March 28th, but then there was breaking news that President Dwight D. Eisenhower had passed away. Oh. So all the news coverage was about Eisenhower, so Star Trek got bumped, and then it got bumped again and again. And by the time it finally returned to the airwaves with a brand new episode, almost three months after all our yesterdays, it was June 3rd, 1969. Now, where all the other third season episodes aired, Friday night at 10 p.m., which, you know, was the death slot. Right. You know, Roddenberry was pissed off, and that was why he stepped away from the show. When it finally returned for its final airing on June 3rd, 1969, its final first run airing, it was on a Tuesday night at 730. Hmm. So the irony after all this is that when Star Trek finally returned for its final episode, it was in the time slot that Roddenberry had wanted all along, Monday night, or Tuesday night rather, at 7.30 p.m. The ratings for Turnabout Intruder were the lowest Star Trek ever had in its entire first run. A 19% share, which is pretty good today. Sure, today it's a hit. <laughs> today it's like, holy moly, we got a hit. But it was the, uh, it was the lowest rated episode of the original series in first run. Even though it had a good time slot. Even though I had a good time slot. I, but I, yeah, I thought you were going to tell the opposite story, that it got the good time slot and suddenly, hey, all these people came to see it, but that's not well, what happened. Well, because it had been three months yeah. since a first-run episode, people just kind of like, well, you know, forgot about it. And then when it finally returned, it was like it was like NBC said, oh, yeah, we still got this new episode of Star Trek. Yeah, just put it on Tuesday at right. 7.30 and be done with it because that's what NBC wanted and that was what Paramount wanted. You know, they did not know what they had until it was too late. Sure. 
Um, so, as you said, it was filmed from uh, December 31st to January 9th in 1969. On the 1st, the Ohio State Buckeyes beat the USC Trojans 27-16 to in the Rose Bowl. On January 2nd, 37-year-old Australian media magnate Rupert Murdoch bought the best-selling British Sunday paper, The, New, uh, the News of the World, and that is the beginning of Murdoch and the empire that yeah. it would become. That is definitely an empire striking back. <laughs> yeah. On January 4th, the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination was ratified by the UN, and there's never been any racism since. So I'm glad we solved that problem. Yeah, done. Wow. Yeah. We got rid of that. On uh, a march by Catholics in Belfast, uh, attacked were attacked by Protestant loyalists with clubs and rocks, and the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the police, stood by watching and did nothing. The trial of Sirhan Sirhan began on January 7th, 1969. On January 9th, Joe Namath of the Jets predicts that they will win the Super Bowl against the Colts, which nobody believed was going to happen, and that is exactly what did happen Go three Joe. days later. Yeah, And here's the thing. So... You know, as I'm looking through events, I, I frequently am skipping over things. And I think I've mentioned before that one of the things I was skipping over is plane crashes. And it just continually surprised me that there's so many of them. And and I was skipping over them again in this week that this episode was filmed. And then I just felt I had to list it, which is that on December 31st, there was a plane crash killing 26 in Australia. On the 2nd, a plane crash killing 24 in Taiwan. There was one on the 5th killing 50 in London and one on the 6th killing 11 in Pennsylvania. Damn. I mean, that's a lot. I, we think about, you, you know, if a plane crash happens once a year or twice a year, we're like, oh, my God, this is this terrible tragedy. And this is like six times in this week. Wow. That's a lot. No, that's, that's a lot. Crazy. If you're watching the news, you're going like, I'm never flying again. No, I know. And yeah. well, it's funny because I know people who have lots of people have a real fear of flying. And it's like, man, if I'd been coming up in the 60s, I'd have fear of flying, too. That's sure. really, really dangerous. Um, but that is what was going on when the last episode of Star Trek, the original series was filmed. Shall we get into that last episode? Let's get into it for the final time on the original series. So we've received this distress call from this ruins of a dead civilization and we're beaming down and there is a man and a woman and the woman is like the ex-girlfriend of one of the guys who's beaming down. And did you think about the first broadcast episode of Star Trek, The Man Trap, as you're watching this? So the first, uh, I did not, but it's, you did. <laughs> it's really the same situation. There's an old flame. There's a weird conspiracy between the, the, the guy and this woman. The woman isn't going to be exactly what we think she is. Other people are going to die around it. And then we're going to beam up something in the ship that's super dangerous. You blew my mind, Steve Morris. You have connected the very first episode of Star Trek to air on September 8th, 1966, The Man Trap, with the very last episode of Star Trek to air on June 3rd, 1969. That is incredible. That is incredible. So, so, so you're connecting by air date. I actually have... Uh, a connection to the first episode that was filmed, but I'll get to that later. But that is amazing that you picked up on that. And what we hear is that there's been exposure to radiation and she's kind of lying in the bed and there's a long look from Kirk who says, Janice, you must remain absolutely quiet. Those are doctor's orders, not mine. 
Well, lying in that bed is Sandra Smith playing Dr. Janice Lester. Sandra Smith was on TV shows like Guiding Light, Our Private World, The Big Valley, Bonanza, The Interns, Gunsmoke, and Hawaii Five-O. And with her is Dr. Coleman, played by Harry Landers on TV. He went way back to shows like Captain Video and his Video Rangers and Ben Casey in the 60s. And on film, he was in movies like The Ten Commandments and Charo. Oh, wow. Um, and by the way, one thing I went, it's like, oh, it's Janice. And there's been another, there was another Janice that was very important in Star Trek and in Kirk's life, which oh, I just right. find a little bit weird. Yeah, he's got a type. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, and well, in this case, the type is the crazy type. Yes. <laughs> Captain, tricorder picking up very faint life readings, approximately 700 meters from here. Help will have to be immediate. And so... They all start to go, but then Janice grabs Captain Kirk and they say, perhaps your presence will quiet her. So Spock and McCoy and Dr. Coleman leave, leaving Kirk alone with Janice Lester. So what's interesting here is that basically Spock and McCoy, she calculated this pretty pretty good, knowing that, that if she pulled Captain Kirk to stay with her, the other guys would go off to try to save whoever was still alive. But I was thinking about it like, she basically killed her entire science team to set this up. Oh, yeah. And She's nuts. With Coleman's help. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and also, they did all this thing, and the one thing they didn't do was think about, well, how much time do you really need to do this transfer and then kill Jan? Their plan is not that great. I hoped I wouldn't see you again. I don't blame you. The year we were together at Starfleet is the only time in my life I was alive. When was this, I guess, is my... Is this Starfleet Academy? I, I always thought it was Starfleet Academy. Uh, at the time before Kirk left the Academy to get his first place on a starship, presumably the Farragut. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, I, I always thought it was like before he became a captain until she like starts saying, you know, your world, the starship captains doesn't admit women. I, well, I, so I always thought, first I thought it was the Academy. And then I think we've kind of decided that Kirk goes away and then he comes back to teach at Academy later after the Farragut. Is right, that right? Right. Because then he's Lieutenant Kirk. Because well, he, he went away, you know, and that's when he went to the planet Norrell for a private little war. Right. Yeah. So we, we, you know, we sort of did a lot of headcanon here and trying to like, you know, this is when he was away. This is when he went back. I, my gut is it feels to me like this was in, like maybe he was a Lieutenant Commander and mm-hmm. this was in the moment of him about to become a captain. But was she ever in Starfleet? If, if she... Yeah, it's a good question. Because how the hell was she going to become a captain if she was never in Starfleet? I was, you know, if 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 she wanted to be a captain but felt like she couldn't be a captain, she maybe she was in Starfleet, but just men were were getting getting to that point faster than she was, and she got very very bitter about it. Well, and, th- and so and you know one of the big problems with this episode is what's about to be said right here, which is he says, "I never stopped you from going on with your space work." Whatever that means, I don't know what work they're talking about. Your world of starship captains doesn't admit women. That line was the first cringe-worthy moment, uh, just in the teaser, because mm-hmm. there are a few cringe-worthy moments in the teaser itself. So your world of starship captains doesn't admit women. Tell that to the captain of the Saratoga, played by Matt Sinclair in Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, or Captain Garrett of the Enterprise C in Yesterday's Enterprise, or Captain Janeway of the Voyager, or Michael Burnham on Star Trek Discovery. I I think that line has been 
left in the dust. But this is a moment that's made me go, not only is it cringe-inducing, but I wish this episode could be, for the, for this reason alone, I wish that Turnabout Intruder would be erased of existence because it, it just it just drags down all the progressive ways that Star Trek succeeded. Well, I also go, I mean, you went into the future, which obviously, you know, there are women in Star Trek and that's that's been solved. But I would even go back to the cage and number one is a woman. Are you saying that she is not allowed to get to the next level and become the captain? Or or also in the premiere episode of Star Trek Discovery, Captain Philippa Giorgio, played by the great Michelle Yeoh, sure. was the captain of the Discovery. And that took place before. Sure. But you're talking about something that was made in 2019 or yeah, whatever that was made. Yeah. I'm talking about in 1964. Four when they made the when they made the, the cake? yeah yeah the November and December of sixty four if you make the first officer a woman well did if you had asked Gene Roddenberry at that moment is it possible for there to be a woman captain in in Star Trek I think he would have said yes that's exactly right I think he would have said yes too first of all the fact that she was the first officer so if something happens to Captain Pike number one is yeah. in command. In fact, she was in she command. She was in command. While, you know, Kirk uh, Pike was on the planet, while he was in the cage. And there's no implication that there's anything weird about her being in command at all. Nothing at all. Nothing yeah. at all, except from Pike himself, uh, when he makes the comment on the on the actual complete version of the cage. This is not seen in the menagerie during the flashbacks, but when you watch the cage in its entirety, there's uh, that, that line that Pike says to... Uh, to number one, uh, you know, like about being a woman, and she like gives him a look. Yes, there's definitely some sexism in the case. For sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, th- and this goes to, because I, it's, j- and, and I really wonder, did Roddenberry approve this line at this moment? I mean, he's mostly out the door, and he wasn't writing the drafts of the script, as you said, so did he look at that and go, yeah, yeah, that's what I think? Or was it, was, you know, Roddenberry wrote his story but it was Arthur Singer who wrote the telephone. That's what I mean, yeah. So the dialogue came from Arthur Singer. So Roddenberry wrote a few outlines. Now, I don't know if there was dialogue in those outlines. Normally there is not. But but if that if that dialogue came from Arthur Singer, then, then it's not on Roddenberry. See, because if this was like Finney and Court Martial, who believed that he was capable but had messed up in some ways and actually wasn't really capable of being a captain— that would work perfectly fine for this episode. You have a crazy person who's jealous of Kirk and wants his position. But that's not what they're saying it is. They're saying women were not allowed. Well, also, what's surprising is that regardless of who wrote it, and my guess, again, because the cre- the teleplay is credited to Arthur Singer, is that Fred Freiberger, the producer, actually okayed that dialogue, that he okayed those lines, because it was Fred Freiberger during season three who, you know, even though he gets a bad rap, he made some pretty forward-thinking decisions in terms of putting a woman in command of the Romulan, uh, Romulan starship. Right. And, you know, Natira of Yonata was a very strong leader. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he the very first female Klingon was in one of his episodes. I mean, there was a lot. We had a lot of strong women characters. A lot of strong in the women season. characters, exactly. Well, and, and this is, and I know we're literally a, spent a ton of time on this one line at the very beginning of the teaser, but... 
in really good writing, I actually don't think it's always necessary to go back as a writer and go through the backstory of every character you have. I, I if the, But what is necessary is that the things that they say and their actions make sense within a certain context. And hers really don't. And it's like, well, is, was she in Starfleet or was she not in Starfleet? Right. How did she become a doctor? What did she do? What was the nature of her relationship with Kirk? And it doesn't quite all fit together. Like it's the science team that is on this planet, which is called Camus 2, is the science team. Starfleet is a part right. of the Federation. Doesn't seem to be because Coleman, Dr. Coleman was kicked out of Starfleet. Right. Yes, he was. Yeah. So when she says it wasn't fair, he says, No, it isn't. You punished and tortured me because of it. I loved you. We could have roamed among the stars. And Kirk's response, we'd, we'd have, have killed, killed each, each other. other. So after all these episodes where we have seen a love interest from Kirk's past, there's still feelings between them. Uh, and then there are other episodes where Kirk has romanced in order to use the person to get what he wants, the information that he needs, whether it's Lenore Caridian or Sylvia in Catspaw. Mm -hmm. But here's the first time we are seeing sort of the uh, consequence of, of Kirk's uh, relationships not working out. You know, a woman yeah. who actually wants to kill him and take, not only kill him, but take his place on the Enterprise. Uh, I mean, so she is totally off a rocker, no question about it. But uh, I just thought it was interesting. Wow, she, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And it was funny, I was just thinking as you were talking that, well, if you're a guy that's attractive, and has a lot of women that you might have had a dalliance with here and there. And a lot of those women are still totally into you, which we see in Court Martial, we see in The Deadly Years, we see in a bunch of different places. Eventually, one of them is going to be nuts. Right, that's true. <laughs> and, and I don't mean this is a male-female <laughs> thing. I think anyone who has enough people in their past, they're going to have a couple of stories of like, that one I made a big mistake with. Yeah, you know, sure. Yeah, and clearly well, this is Kirk's. You know. Yep. Yeah, I'm actually it just hit me. There's uh, someone from my past who was a little certifiable back in the day. Well, yep. don't ever let her put you up against some sort of sci-fi altar because nope. she might want to switch bodies. Not checking her. out any ruins when I'm around her. But that's what Kirk does right now, and he walks over to these ruins. Lester looks over at him with this devilish smile on her face. She hits the remote to trap Kirk. <laughs> And then when she gets out of bed, she's clearly perfectly fine, which uh, McCoy maybe should have noticed early on, like, you know, or he throughout didn't... the entire episode. Yeah, totally. But like, what soon as he beamed down, he should have taken out his tricorder and like yep. examined her. Talk about something that would have like uh, got rid of all of this, possibly, you know, none of this would have happened. Um, but, you know, there was still uh, an urgent need to rescue the, the survivors who were off in the distance. She goes to him, stands on this altar, flips a switch, and we have these sort of negative still images of their, of each of them switch bodies. And I think already we kind of know what's happening. Oh, absolutely. So here's a couple of questions. Um, you know, first of all, you know, rewatching it, it hit me that Lister, Lester and Coleman, like, basically killed off the whole science team and that Coleman was actually in on this. So uh, in the earlier version, too, uh, it was Lester. Lester actually knocks Kirk unconscious with a phaser blast. But the point that the most important thing about this moment that you just described so eloquently about Kirk being frozen against the ruins and Lester flicking the switch, this moment was the very last scene filmed. 
for the original series. Oh, wow. This was the very, very last moment. In fact, only Sandra Smith and William Shatner were on the set for these scenes because DeForest Kelly and Leonard Nimoy and, you know, the guy who plays Coleman were off. Also worth noting is that during the last couple of days of filming Turnabout and Shooter, William Shatner got a really bad flu bug mm. that he contracted when he was in the Rose Parade on New Year's Day. Oh. So for these last couple of days, he got so feverish and so uh, like wonky that they, they had to put a cot on the set so that in between scenes where he wasn't needed, he could just lie back down. And there were times when he would perspire so much from the fever that they had to keep touching him up yeah. with, uh, with makeup. So Shatner actually said, on the last show, I recall having gotten the flu. We weren't going to stop filming while Billy had his flu, I can tell you that. So I staggered onto the studio every day, and they'd bring out a cot, and I'd lie down on the cot, and they'd say, okay, you're on. I'd say my lines, and then I'd fall back on the cot. And I think I probably got the flu because I was so disappointed that the show was over. You know, people have such a weird image in their head of what the life of an actor is like because it seems so romantic. And when they see the actors, they see them dressed up in fabulous outfits and going to these award shows and being interviewed on TV. And what they don't realize is that generally acting is really, really long hours under often very difficult and uncomfortable conditions, you know, and super hot lights, wearing tons of makeup. It's hard, hard kind of grueling work. And particularly... I could be pretty tough if I with physical pain, but if I feel sick, I just want to lay down and be left entirely alone. And also, they have to memorize their lines. Can you imagine, like, okay, you got to memorize 10 pages of dialogue, yep. and then you have to stand up and be charming or angry or funny or light or and totally and have absolutely no way anyone's going to know you're sick. When you watch this episode, would never, you right, never, never, never would you pick up? Oh, Shatner's a little off. If anything, his performance is fantastic. Like not for one minute that I look out. Oh, maybe he's sick. We're, we're doing Cuckoo's Nest for the cinephiles, and there's the scene where they all go out on the boat, and the seas were kind of rough. And I know from the behind the scenes stuff that there was a lot of people puking because they were really, really seasick. Oh boy! And I'm watching it, and with the exception of two shots of Jack Nicholson, where I went, there he looks seasick. Other than that, I would never have, and you could see the waves behind them. They're going up and down and up and down, but they're being, because that's the job. That's the job. You know? Yep, that's right. Um, so we're back in act one, uh, and Kirk, the Kirk now, opens his eyes. Um, Janice Lester is still frozen. He looks at her. He looks at his arms. He flips the switch and picks her up, and we already know what's going on. You had your chance, Captain Kirk. You should have smothered the life in me. Then they would have said, Dr. Janice Lester died of radiation poisoning in the line of duty. Why didn't you do it? You always wanted to. So as soon as Kirk flicks that switch, Shatner flicks the switch on his performance. Yes. When he picks up Lester, when he picks up Sandra Smith, and he says, yeah, you had your chance, Captain Kirk. First of all, he laughs like maniacally, mm -hmm. like 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 a, an, a crazy person, like the Joker. And then he, with a, there's a little bit of a feminine touch in his enunciation. You've had your chance, Captain Kirk. Like he just is crushing it from the moment he starts his performance as Lester in Kirk's body. There's, I have big problems with certain things about this episode, but Shatner friggin' sells it. 
It's funny because you we we this has come up multiple times in the course of the show, and you've always said that what you just said, and I've always said, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if I feel that way. And watching it this time, I'm more persuaded of your point of view, and I think I had a very strong sort of Shatner is playing a negative feminine cliche, mm-hmm. and I and it rubbed me the wrong way. And watching it this time, I had less of that experience. And part of it comes from, I don't like the way this is written. I don't like the basic concept. I don't like what, because thematically, what is it? It's not just what it's saying. If it was just talking about, there's this crazy person, Janice Lester, and this is her. I wouldn't, wouldn't bother me so much, but there's so much about this episode that feels like it's commenting on women, you know? Absolutely. And then watching Shatner's performance and that he's crazy and slightly effeminate and jealous and vindictive. And it's just like, I don't like it. And I think my dislike of that whole thing colored what I'm kind of more persuaded of your point of view that Shatner is doing a pretty good job with the material that he's given. The material that he's given. That's the key right there, Steve, because Shatner didn't write this, these, this dialogue. No. You know, it was Arthur Singer or Fred Freiberger or maybe even Roddenberry himself. But this is what Shatner was given, and he delivered. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I also have to say, their whole plan is stupid. I mean, this is a dumb plan. Like, A, we haven't given them enough time for the other guys to go away before they come back to make this happen. But B, her statement of, you should have strangled me, and then they would have just diagnosed me with death of radiation poisoning. I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure Dr. McCoy can tell the difference between someone strangled and someone who dies of radiation poisoning, none of these things that she's saying makes particular sense. I, I totally thought of that. Like, you mean to tell me that Kirk's going to strangle Lester and McCoy's going to do his own, you know, finally take out the tricorder and do his, do his stuff with his little thing. And then, like, so, oh, somebody strangled her. But here's the thing. Well, there'd be bruises on your neck. Right. I mean, you don't even have to have a tricorder to see that. But also, also, it wasn't really that that Coleman didn't give... Kirk enough time to kill Lester. And by the way, when we talk to when we talk about Kirk from this point forward, we're really talking about Lester, right. but we don't want to confuse everyone. Yeah. So, but what happened was that Kirk was just a little too gleeful in pouncing on the moment and rubbing it in Lester's face. He would have had the time to kill Lester if if he just went ahead and did it. But he just was was like, you know, he want, he wanted to boast about, ha ha, I win. I'm going to take your ship. So so there. But, you know, if he hadn't done any of that, then he would have actually had enough time to kill her. Yeah. And would still have gotten caught because it'd be obvious that she had been murdered. But, but he's standing over, he's talking, and he says, I already possess your physical strength. Only this Captain Kirk is not afraid to kill and the way he he is wrapping the scarf around his fist, getting ready to strangle her again. Shatner's delivery, like sick or not, and this was this was all done on day six of the production. So Kirk was definitely in the throes of his Asian flu by this point. But Shatner again, like he must have thought, "Wow, what a great role! What a great what a great character I get to play a woman in a man's body, a crazy woman in a man's body." Well, Shatner likes to ham it up. I mean, he likes to play big stuff. Yep. Now you know the indignity of being a woman. Cringe, 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 cringe. Just a few episodes ago in the Savage Curtain, we had the Ahura moment where they talk about 
words don't bother us now and we yep. move beyond that and that is and that is an episode where thematically there are lots of things that I like and execution wise I don't think it works that great and this episode it's like hold on you're telling me that it's cuz again it's not saying I felt indignant about being a woman it's saying it's saying that the world of the federation and starfleet is just as sexist as and it's not it, it's it's so bad on so many levels. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I, now, now, at the same time, just to play devil's advocate, Lester is full of, first of all, she's full of hatred. She's definitely full of revenge. Yes. Uh, at, you know, but at the same time, she's feeling really sorry for herself, blaming everyone else for her inability to succeed in whether it's Starfleet or whatever it is. Like you said, it's very unclear like where she is in the whole Starfleet Federation thing. So the indignity that she feels being a woman, is that is that a reflection of of the time of of the of the century where this episode takes place? Or is that her wallowing in self-pity, looking for an excuse for her inability to succeed? And here's this guy who broke her heart and she's just gonna blame him and Starfleet for everything. Well, if it were that episode that's what I'm saying of having to be more like Finney from Court Martial. Right. And that would totally be fine with me. Right. If it was her failure in all these and her inadequacies that she's blamed on sexism but isn't true, well, that's a much more interesting episode. That's, but that's not how it's written. That's not how it's written because the next line. Believe me, it's better to be dead than to live alone in the body of a woman. Ouch. Cringe. Cringe. I hate that line. And. And certainly rewatching the episode and, and you know, with, with today's set of eyes, especially after the prior 79 deep dives that we did, uh, this is a line I always, like since I was 11 years old, absolutely hated. Like every time I would see it, the few times that I actually did, I would go, oh, God, I hate that. I well, hate this. And here's the thing is that in 2022, when we're recording this, we could talk. We could take this and talk about, and I can hear people out there groaning about what I'm about to say about things like trans rights and gender and stuff like that. And I don't want to go there at all. Okay. So I would take your groan back. Is that <laughs> because I don't think this episode is engaging in those ideas? Right. I think today maybe we would, and we would talk about what is it like to feel that. But th there, they're not. They're saying it feels like they're saying that it's better to be dead than be in the body of a woman. And then just as about maybe Kirk was about to kill Lester, he hears something and in comes Coleman, Spock, and McCoy, and he missed his moment. And he he had his chance, and now it's uh, damage control, so to speak. Um, and there's an immediate look from Coleman to Kirk and Dr. Lester, and obviously he knows. He knows that the transition has taken place. Well, this is where I kept seeing the connection to the man trap, where the, the guy, whatever his name is, that doctor could tell the difference uh, when it was Nancy. Is that her name? Yep, uh, Nancy Crater, and the husband was Professor, Professor Crater. Your report. We were too late, Jim. There's nothing could be done. And Kirk says that Lester was unconscious the whole time, and Dr. Coleman goes to her and says, Dr. Lester is near death. Now they're waiting for Kirk to make a decision. Right. Because Lester is near death and McCoy is looking at Kirk. Coleman is looking at Kirk, a.k.a. Lester. And Kirk realizes, oh, I better do something. And he takes out his communicator. And right away, he is not himself. Captain Kirk to the Enterprise. Captain Kirk to the Enterprise. 
So right. already something's off. It's particularly a great thing for all of us who watch these shows over and over again because it's so obviously wrong. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, where if you watch the show casually, maybe it doesn't seem so wrong. But they do beam up. Kirk is carrying Lester. Dr. Coleman, accompany the patient to the sick bay. And gives Spock orders. And then he's alone with McCoy and says, This is especially disturbing to me for uh, personal reasons. Oh, I didn't know you knew her that well. And then reveals about their relationship. And he said, and then Kirk's story of it is, I walked out on her when it became serious. And what does he do at that moment when he says, I walked out on her when it became serious? Kind of puts his hand up to like his head. Right. He's like fixing his hair. Oh. Yeah. He's like, you know, sort of like making sure his hair is in place. Just something like, you know, just a subtle touch that makes it not very Kirkish. Do you think that Kirk, James Kirk walked out on Janice Lester when it became serious? No. I think that's Lester's perception of what Kirk did. This is this is one of the things I actually do like, which is the idea, because I'm sure you've had conflicts with people you were in relationships or friendships with, and that they saw a certain situation one way and you saw a situation another way. Right. And now you get to have the power to go into their body and have that person tell your version of the story yes. rather than theirs and reframe history that way. I do kind of like that. And, and McCoy being nice says, well, okay, I'll make sure to take really good care of her. So this next moment is really, really well done, really subtle, and something I didn't really notice until like just the other day when I rewatched the episode. So Scotty starts off addressing Captain Kirk. He goes, Dr. Lester. And he's just going to make a statement about Dr. Lester. But because Scotty paused, Kirk turns to him in shock and surprise, like he's reacting to somebody addressing him as Dr. Lester. Like, he starts off, he goes, Dr. Lester, and he, like, like turns around really quickly, and then Scotty finishes this comment, and he was just making a comment about her. But for a split second, Kirk almost outed himself as being Lester. Oh, interesting. We're in sickbay. Uh, Lester is still unconscious. Coleman is there, and Kirk enters. No McCoy yet. If you allow Dr. Lester... To become fully conscious, she'll know what has happened. Probably no one will believe it. You're wrong. This is not, you, can, you know, I, I, I'm i with a fake Kirk at the moment that having her become conscious would be bad. So at this moment, Kirk is, his, his guard is damp. He's mm-hmm. just acting like Lester. And his, like, when Kirk is Lester is around the crew, he tries to be Kirk. And, and for the most part, he succeeds, except for things like, you know, fixing his hair or filing his nails in front of Dr. McCoy. But now that no one else is around, he could just sort of be herself around Coleman. And there's, there's more of a panic in Kirk's voice because, like, we got to do something about this. And uh, during the scenes when Shatner's performance had a more panicked touch and a more feminine touch... That was when the the crew started to refer to this particular episode as Captain Kirk, Space Queen. Ugh. Yeah. Well, and this is, again, this is growing up. Why my my problem, where I agree with you that in some ways his performance is good, I also feel like his performance is a real stereotype that I find that bugs me. I agree. I hear you. Um, But this is also where we find out where Coleman says, Killed every one of the staff. 
You sent them where you knew the Solibium shielding was weak. So this is very clear. Lester is a murderer. Yep. And it's funny because I kept thinking about Mantrap, which is that all the staff in Mantrap also get killed, but that's because the last of the kind creature needs salt to survive, and this was the only way for the creature to survive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the situation, this is a real murderer yeah, as, this opposed is a murder. to, yep. as opposed to a monster, um, or what we would perceive as a monster. Then Kirk says this weird thing in describing why he didn't kill Lester. He hung on to life too hard. Which I didn't see in that. No, I didn't see all. that that's way at all. The episode. Why didn't he kill her? Because he's still in love with Kirk. She's still in love with Kirk. Love him. I love the life he led. The power of a starship commander. It's my life now. In comes McCoy. It's a symptom of the developing radiation illness. Test with the ship's equipment shows no signs of internal radiation damage, Dr. Coleman. And this is where I totally understand how the episode goes where it goes, which is that Kirk is going to order McCoy to stay away and all that stuff. I, there's no way I believe any of it. Like, there's just so little evidence to support what Kirk is doing. Mm-hmm. It's even, it's actually more ridiculous than the way it, it happens in the episode, if that makes sense. I, I, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And at first, Kirk kind of defends McCoy, which I like. I think that is a good strategy for our bad guy. Um, and then Coleman says, Dr. Lester and the staff have been under my supervision for two years now. If you don't follow my recommendations... Responsibility for her health or her death will be yours. And Kirk sides, or Lester Kirk sides with Coleman. Of course. Which to me, it's like, so wait, you were medically responsible for everyone on this planet, all of whom died, (laughs) and Lester is really, really sick. Yeah, I'm going to put you in charge. (laughs) You can't do this. On this ship, my medical authority is final. And then in a sort of sing-songy voice, Dr. Coleman wants to assume the full responsibility. Let him do it. I won't allow it. It's done. And then Lester starts to wake up, and Kirk, not Coleman, says, Dr. Coleman, didn't you suggest a sedation to rest the patient? Yes, Captain. And now we get into this weird moment where Lester starts to wake up and sees a blurry version of himself, because this is Captain Kirk. Nurse Chapel is there. Uh, I like her with the brown yeah, hair, by the way. Yeah, she got the brown hair. Yeah. yeah, she really looks better with the brown hair. The 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 platinum blonde thing always seemed like fake dyed hair. And, and also, like, or every wig. episode, it was, like, styled in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> this seems much more natural. And now we're in this debate of McCoy doesn't think that the patient should be given a sedative. Kirk is saying Coleman is in charge, and Chapel is caught between them. Yeah, it's a, it's an, a tough position for Chapel, but... The way that Lester is looking at Kirk, like she can't believe her eyes. She's like, I'm, wait, I'm looking at myself? How yeah. can that be? It's really good. I don't believe that McCoy lets this go down this way at all. Mm-hmm. Giving a patient who shows no signs of radiation poisoning, who is waking up and giving them a, letting Chapel give him a sedative. I don't think, I think he would be yelling and screaming and never let this go down, you know? At the same time, but Kirk orders it. Kirk orders it, yeah. And they give her the shot, and she slowly goes unconscious, and that's the end of Act One. So we're back in the same spot, and we hear a captain's log. James Kirk is returning to consciousness in the body of Janice Lester. The Enterprise is proceeding to its next mission on the course set for it before I took over command. It's a thing that I have. I kind of maybe brought up a couple of times. The, the What are the logs makes no sense in Star Trek. You know, we've talked about this from the very beginning. Like, like in remember in the man in the enemy within, uh, Kirk's log says 
uh, uh, due to a transporter malfunction, uh, a duplicate of myself definitely exists. Right. So is the captain's log like like he actually is recording this? Which onto we a see log? sometimes. Which sometimes he sometimes we see does. That. Yeah, absolutely. Or is the captain's log just like a narration for our benefit? Well, that's what I mean. That's where it doesn't. They really didn't. Figure it was not out. consistent. No, because right. because the thing is, or is it like in because in general with voiceover, voiceover can be. I'm actually telling somebody specific a story. Voiceover can be set way in the future, and I'm telling you something about what's happening in the past. Voiceover can be I'm telling you something about that's happening to me right now, and it's sort of my internal monologue. It could be any of those, but generally you'd pick one and stick with it. And this doesn't at all. Yeah. And so the idea. That a captain's and saying captain's log implies that it's being recorded somewhere. In this case, the person who has taken over Kirk's body is talking about the fact that they took over Kirk's body and that they're not Kirk on a log. And later in the episode, you actually hear Lester, who's inhabited by Kirk, give her own captain's log. So where did that get recorded? Yeah. Well, and, 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 then, and, and then I go to it's like if it's an internal monologue then this should be the feminine voice of Dr. Lester saying this, not Kirk's voice. And when it's Kirk's internal monologue in the body of Lester, we should actually hear Shatner's voice. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, I, I thought about that too, but I guess like what, you know, the producer probably like, you know, this is going to get really confusing. Let's, let's keep it simple. Well, and it's the end of the show. Yeah. And we're just like, eh, it's right. fine. No, yeah, no, let's, no. We got to film this in six days. We're already going a day over schedule. Um, <laughs> but the one thing we do here is that, Dr. Lester has spent years studying the Enterprise to prepare for this. So Kirk is on the bridge, and all the scenes on the bridge are, were filmed on days four and five of the production of Turnabout Intruder. We have Kirk walk over to Sulu and Chekhov. Mr. Sulu, set speed at warp factor two. Warp factor two, sir. The, what's great about this scene is the way that Kirk sits in the chair. The way that he... Basically, Lester gets to sit in the captain's chair for the very first time. And her her plan, her crazy, wild, this is never going to happen plan actually worked. And here, Lester in Kirk's body sits in the captain's chair for the first time. And the way that Shatner plays it, he just, he plays it perfectly. Like, he doesn't want to let on to anyone else on the bridge that, that he's having this moment. Because that would arouse suspicion to anyone who has been on the Enterprise with Kirk all the time. Like, why is he getting, you know, getting so excited about sitting in the chair? So, so he, he has to have it dialed back. It's, it's more subtle. But if you're noticing it, of course, we are because the camera is on Shatner. He, he's really great in this scene. I'm now going to read to you verbatim from my notes at this moment. This is what I wrote down. Kirk goes to sit in his chair. Scott's right. Shatner is good through all this stuff. <laughs> Mr. Chekhov, plot a course for the Venetia colony. Three course to Venetia, three seven three mark eight. By the way, do you remember last week I mentioned in the news of the world that the first two recognized murders from the Zodiac killer had happened right. in the previous week's production? Mm -hmm. Do you happen to remember the name of the city where those events happened? Uh, the Zodiac Killers? Mm-hmm. The first two murders. Wasn't San Francisco? No. The first two murders, uh, as I mentioned last week, took place in Benicia. Oh, interesting. Now, I can't imagine there's any connection because there's no way that they knew that those murders were important it, that week because they never there's no Zodiac Killer. No one had come up with that name yet. These are the first victims. But it was really strange to go, 
I read a news story about Benicia, California last week, and this week they're going to Benicia Colony. So do you think they might have, like, you know, whether it's the whatever, whoever Seen wrote it this. a news report or something. Who, oh, that sounds like a good name. But actually, I think the word Benicia, like Benicia Colony, was actually used in a prior episode. Oh, really? Uh, it might have been Conscience of the King. If hmm. I, I, I might be mistaken. But but still, your theory is actually pretty good, too. <laughs> I, I, my, my real theory is it's a coincidence. Yeah. It just doesn't matter. But uh, but we go, we're going to set course to Benicia, and Spock immediately looks up. That will delay our work at Beta Aurigai. It means reversing course. Yes, it can't be helped. We must take Dr. Lester to a place where she can be treated. But what's great about this is that while Lester was planning all of this, mm-hmm. all of the research and preparation she did, there's one thing that she didn't plan for, and that is Mr. Spock. I point out that Starbase 2 is on the direct route to our destination. How long to Starbase 2? 72 hours, Captain. It's 24 hours too long. Dr. Lester's condition. There's no medical evidence that there's anything wrong with Dr. Lester at all. Sir, if the diagnosis of Dr. Lester's illness is the critical problem, then the Venetia colony is definitely not the place for her. Their medical facilities are the most primitive. Well, and there's very little that can be done on a starship that can't be done on a uh, on a starbase that can't be done on a starship. Isn't that... Uh, the, the deadly years. Deadly years. Right, right. Well, so, well, and the big thing, you know what? This parallels to me... The stupidity of Dr. Lester's plan parallels the stupidity of the planet Gideon's plan, which is like, oh, you really think you can build the Enterprise to the most minute detail and have it get, and get away with it? You really think that you can pretend to be Captain Kirk with all the people that know him best and get away with it? Right. You know, there's just no way that a human could do this. As, especially after all, a lot of these crew members have been with Kirk on the Enterprise for what's yeah. basically been the entire five-year mission. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they argue about it, and you can see Spock's looks and going, what's going on with this? And Kirk's increasing irritation with it. And then even to the point of where the communications officer says, should I advise Starfleet? And he's like, No. Our arrival at Beta Aurigae will merely be delayed. Our gravitational studies of that binary system will not suffer, and a life may be saved. That is not unusual procedure for the Enterprise. Right, okay, so the communications officer wears Uhura. Well, as, as I pointed out when we did the Savage Curtain, the Savage Curtain was Uhura's final appearance on Star Trek. And Michelle Nichols, for this episode, she had a singing engagement, and she was otherwise engaged and not available. So... She was replaced by Barbara Baldwin, who played Lieutenant Lisa, the communications officer. So if you're looking at Lieutenant Lisa, Barbara Baldwin, the name Barbara Baldwin should sound familiar because she played Lieutenant Angela Martine right. in Balance of Terror and in Shoreleaf. So it's the same actress who, by the way, was married to casting director Joseph D'Agosta. But when they brought her back for, for Turnabout Intruder, she had a different name, but Still married to and different hair because yep. I think she has red hair in this one yep. and had was a brunette in the other one. That's right. And Kirk is getting increasingly angry. Mr. Spark, if you'd concentrate on the areas for which you are responsible, Starfleet Command would have been informed already. Even though that's what he had been arguing <laughs> against a moment before. Then we cut to Kirk's quarters, and he is, as you mentioned before, filing his nails. He's filing his nails. Like again. I mean, look, that's an obvious touch because we've never seen Kirk do anything like this. Yeah, I think it's dumb, frankly. I don't I don't like him filing his nails. Uh, I, I, you know, under the circumstances, given the situation here, 
again, subtle touch. I mean, of course, McCoy doesn't know it. It's like, I've never seen Jim do that before. I mean, <laughs> men do file their nails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it is, it's just such a, it's a weird, I don't know. But the way that, so McCoy is in his quarters, like basically being like, why did you replace Coleman? I mean, with me with Coleman, he's like, they're trying to have a, a rational, uh, level-headed discussion about it. And Kirk is like, why are you being so defensive? Like he raises his voice, you know, again, there's an inflection in his voice that is very un-Kirk, uh, but still subtle enough where McCoy is not really noticing like something is really, really off on this person. And what we do here is that Coleman's incompetent. He was kicked out of Starfleet for both administrative and medical reasons for blunders. I can only say that Dr. Coleman's experience with what happened on the planet had to be the deciding factor here. I'm sure that you can appreciate that. And again, I'm like, his experience on the planet where everybody else died? Yeah, <laughs> It's yeah. not a great recommendation. I appreciate the fact that you had a decision to make. I also find myself in that position now, Jim. And I'm asking you to report for an examination. So it's funny, and I was thinking about, like, what are the other times that McCoy and Spock did not trust Kirk? We have Conscience of the King. We have Obsession. We have these other episodes where, hey, Kirk's acting weird. What are we going to do about this? Right, and they're on him. Yep. They're always on him. Yep. And certainly in this episode, his his uh, personality def- deficiencies are are much more overt yeah. than just a motive for a questionable command decision. Right. But they're on him. Right. Well, and the big difference is those other ones, they were Kirk. Right, right. <laughs> so an accident, Certainly, isn't it? Yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're in sickbay, and sh- and Dr. Lester wakes up, looks around, and the first thing checks her stats, which are all normal. Pulse, pressure, blood count, all body functions normal. Then why am I here? Doesn't notice, by the way, that her voice is strange, calls for Dr. McCoy, and there is Dr. Coleman. Quiet would be best for you. What do you think of Sandra Smith's performance in this episode? I think it's good. Yeah. I think it's pretty good. I think I, I have more, what what I wish had happened in this episode was that they give her more smart things to do. They do, they do one of them, but, but no, I think it's generally pretty good. I think her performance is really good. I agree with you completely. I think she shows an incredible amount of range showing her being calculated in the teaser to being completely level-headed and rational and, you know, she's the first person other than William Shatner to play Captain Kirk. Hmm. And she's also the first woman to play Captain Kirk. <laughs> but, but then by the end of the episode, she totally goes off a rocker, like Lenore Caridian in a, you know, Conscience of the King. I think I just she think, started off off a rocker, frankly. Yeah, she did. She did. Yeah. But just now, like, you have to believe that this actress is Captain Kirk. And I believe that she also sold it. Like, it wasn't like I was watching her performances, especially later in the episode, going like, oh, there's no way that's, that's, that, that doesn't, even though it's a different actor, that's not Captain Kirk. But I believe, you know what? That is Captain Kirk. And Coleman goes, this is for your own protection, and she says, I am not Janice Lester. She did this to me. Now, how can I make you understand? Janice has driven herself mad with jealousy, hatred, and ambition. And then in comes Chapel. Nurse Chapel. Bring Mr. Spock and Dr. McCoy to me at once. Now, they must believe I am not Janice Lester. I am imprisoned in her body, but I am not Janice Lester. And Coleman is gone. Basically, she's crazy. She's crazy, yeah. Yeah. She must be kept sedated. 
Shall I prepare a mild sedative, doctor? Of course. The chapel goes to get a sedation. Yep, sure. No problem. I'll get the sedation. Yeah. And the look of horror yep. on Lester's face. So then Lester slowly walks over to the mirror, and she's looking in the mirror, and she's now seeing with her own eyes, that's not Captain Kirk. And the way she slowly picks up her hands to her face, and you hear Dr. Coleman say, You are insane, Dr. Lester. And the hands slowly touch. She touches her face, and she's having these, these flashes to the moment of transition back on the planet. And she's horrified, like, what am I going to do? So... There are lots of other episodes that could have been made with some of the ideas in this episode. And one of them, you know, there's the uh, Next Gen episode where Riker is in the insane asylum and no one believes oh, that he's sure. Riker. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And he's doubting whether or not I'm sane. Maybe I'm maybe I am crazy. There was an episode like that they could have made here if we'd stayed much more in the perspective of Dr. Lester just in this situation and no sure. one believes her. Mm-hmm. And what do you do? There, there, there were other episodes about actual male and female relationships in the world of Star Trek that we could have made, but we really don't get into that. And there, so it keeps like skirting around issues, things that I think are interesting, mm-hmm. but then not really doing them. And, and just, you know, what would it be like to wake up in a body that's a, of the different gender from you? And what, what, I mean, there's stuff in there that would be interesting. Yep. Um, but, you know, that's not really the episode that we're making. Yeah, no. <laughs> we're back in act three. And now we hear, this is what we mentioned before, the <laughs> Captain Log in her voice. Right. Which is very strange. And that, but this is what I do like is she does what Kirk does, which is to play a role. When Chapel walks in, she acts very, very sweet and apologizes. And what else, what else is she doing? Scheming. She's scheming and she's charming. Yeah, absolutely. Because Kirk, very charming, can be very persuasive to get the information yep. that he wants or to get himself out of a situation, he he can manipulate the situation by being very charming in that situation. That is exactly what Lester is doing here. Is a visit by that very kind Mr. Spock to be allowed? Perhaps that can be arranged before we reach the Benicia colony. The Benicia colony? But isn't the Enterprise going to rendezvous with the Potemkin at Beta Oregon? Like, how does she know this? Well, because it's Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk. Uh, Chapel gives her a drink and she takes a sip and she's like, and th- maybe there's, are, th- are there drugs in the drink? I thought there were. I always uh, think there are Maybe nothing drink. that was going to sedate her. Yeah, I, I, I think maybe, I think Kirk is worried that those, that there might be drugs in the drink to sedate right. him, her, um, to sedate them. <laughs> um, and I like, this is again, the scheming trickster Kirk of, oh, this is good. Can I just finish it slowly? And Chapel says, sure. She leaves pours out the drink, breaks the glass, and starts working on her uh, restraints. McCoy is in sickbay with Spock. At this point, they just think something's wrong with Kirk. Like there's something going on with him, and he doesn't believe there's an issue. But Spock, being Spock, he makes a very logical observation. Whatever happened to the captain on that planet must have taken place in the short space of time that he was alone with Dr. Lester. Perhaps a conversation with her might shed some light. At the moment that they're talking about this, we see Dr. Lester has gotten out and she is running down the corridor. Kirk shows up at sickbay. Spock, Bones, help me. Don't let them lock me away from you. I've got to talk to you. And that's when she sees Captain Kirk. But when she runs into sickbay, she's not manic. No. She's 
she's Kirk-like. Kirk-like. I mean, the subtleties to her performance, to Sandra Smith's performance, are also very, very good. I don't think that, you know, when you think about some of the great guest stars, I mean, sure, I mean, she's not up there with, like, you know, Ricardo Montalban or something no. like that. But she's very, very good. And Kirk sees her. She backs up into the corridor, and Kirk, in a very menacing way, advances on her, disarms her forcefully, and then knocks her out with, again, the old karate chop. The old karate chop. So McCoy is horrified, shocked, and Kirk calls for security and says, you know, take her away and, you know, put her in the solitary. And, And McCoy looks back at Kirk, like, speechless, like, what is the matter with you? And then he motions, like, you know, go ahead, sickbay, captain, like, well, so so two things. One is, I think this should be the end of Act Two, not where we ended Act Two before. Oh, okay. I think this is. Uh, I, I think this would be partially because the fourth act is really long. It the is extremely long fourth act, and so we minutes. could have moved things down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I also think it's more dramatic because we have Kirk there. It's more dramatic because we have McCoy looking at Kirk in that moment. I also think a person just got knocked unconscious in front of sick bay. The doctor would say, bring them into sick bay. Yeah. You know, like there's just so many places where I don't believe Dr. McCoy and how that all is happening. Right, right, um, right. Uh, but they take uh, Lester away. Uh, Kirk goes inside with McCoy. Spock is heading down to the corridor, goes to the brig where we have a couple of red guys guarding the brig. A couple of red shirts here. One of them is Lieutenant Galway, played by David L. Ross. Now, Lieutenant Galway made his first appearance in Miri, where he was Lieutenant Galway. So Lieutenant Galway uh, was killed by Captain Ron Tracy in the Omega Glory when he went to reach for his face. Right. Now, the actor showed up in Day of the Dove playing a different character named Johnson. Right. So we see Johnson sort of get the uh, famous Spock neck pinch when he's under the influence of the, uh, right. the entity, the uh, creature, the, uh, you know, the energy force. But now David O. Ross is back to playing Lieutenant Galway. <laughs> yeah. The captain said that no one is allowed to speak to Dr. Lister. Has such an order ever included his senior officers? No, sir. And then I don't believe this at all, which is that Galway says, well, I guess what he really meant is that I should be there. I'm like, no, the captain clearly said, no, you should call up to the captain is actually what Galway should do. At right. Moment. He should have called up and said, hey, Mr. Yeah. Spock wants to see Lester. Um, we're back again, back to the very beginning of the show with the Corbomite maneuver. Yep. With Kirk on that exam table doing that upside down, you know, pedal thing. That's what I was going to bring up. Yeah. You, you tied the air dates. So you tied the first episode air at the man trap into the last episode air with uh, Turnabout Intruder. And when I was watching the the exam where Kirk is doing the, uh, you know, basically the speed bike thing uh, on the side of the wall, that was that was the moment that we were introduced to Captain Kirk in the very first episode of Star Trek ever produced. Right. So Corbomite Maneuver was not the first episode that aired and it got delayed many times because of the the production that went into the VFX, visual effects. But it was the first episode that was filmed when Star Trek sold to was sold as a regular series. And what a bookend that, you know, you've tied it. We, we bookended this yeah. episode in both ways, air date and production order. Well, and I'm going to bookend another thing, too, in a weird way, which is that uh, McCoy says, That's enough. That's enough. 
your heart will last forever, Captain. And I was like, and it has, because you just interviewed the captain 56 years later. Yes. 54 years oh later. Oh, my gosh. You're right. Yeah. You're right. I mean, he, he, he's going to live forever. His heart will go on forever. Yes. Yeah. William Shatner rules. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we kind of go over his stuff and that he's in great shape. I hope you're as pleased about it as I am. Don't get dressed yet. Because he wants to run some other tests that aren't physical. He wants to run the Robiani Dermal Optic which is basically a test that reveals the basic emotional structure. And he had this test before. So basically, there should be no change at all in this test from when he took it the first time. It's a plot point that just doesn't work at all. Because, <laughs> but they, they do it, and then later on we find out that there was no emotional change. And it's like, look, I can see an emotional change. For sure. Clearly, this Robiani dermal, this, uh, whatever it is. Robiani dermal optic doesn't work. This test sucks. <laughs> You know, it means this damn thing doesn't work. <laughs> um, and uh, we're with Spock talking to Lester. And he's obviously we entered the scene late because she's already described this life transfer thing. But they have no objective proof of this. Spock, when I was caught in the interspace of the Tholian sector, you risked your life and the Enterprise to get me back. Help me get back now. When the Vians of Minara demanded that we let Bones die, we didn't permit it. In one fell swoop, Lester is referencing the Tholian web and the empath. So, listen, it was very rare for anyone in the original series to reference a prior adventure that we saw in an episode. It happened in, like, by any other name, when Rojan talks about the energy barrier, Kirk says, yeah, I know we've been there. And now it's happening twice in this episode, in this particular moment. So... Last week, when we were doing All Our Yesterdays, I made the comment that, really, you know what? It's too bad All Our Yesterdays wasn't the last episode. It was a good episode, and that last moment of the Enterprise speeding away from the exploding star would have been like a great sort of fitting image for the show to end on. And, and oh my, you know, Turnabout Intruder, it's not nearly as good as All Our Yesterdays, but there are things about this episode that even though they were not deliberately thinking this is the last one because they didn't find out that this was going to be the last episode. They found out this was going to be the last episode of the season while they were filming. But they didn't officially know. Right. They didn't think that this is it. It's over, although it, it didn't look good. But this episode does actually serve as a finale of sorts because, A, you tied it to the man trap. You tied it to the Cobra Mate maneuver. We're now referencing two other other episodes here with the with Lester's uh, you know memory of what happened to Kirk in those episodes, but also Kirk brings up a, a Chekhov, it brings up General Order Four, which is like you cannot visit Talos Four right. or you'll be executed. So there's a lot of that going on here. You know, part of our purpose with Enterprise Incidents was to treat the show like it's serialized, and it, it's worked famously uh, in a surprising way. But this episode actually does tie back to prior adventures in a bunch of different ways. It does. I, I mean, the thing is, they didn't do series finales. That's right. not really a thing. Mm. I don't know what the first show to really focus on a finale is. The first one I think of is MASH. That's what I was going to say. The first show I ever saw that actually had a filmed series finale was MASH when Hawkeye takes off in the helicopter and says goodbye. 
That which is fantastic, amazing, amazing episode of television. Mm-hmm. The thing I think is that because what Spock then says is, look, those those incidents have been reported on. You could have read about that stuff. Is that all Kirk has to do is walk up to him and go, Severin Cochran, and that's it, right? Or he could go, or he could go. You know what? Tell that guy in my body to go open up the safe in my quarters. Zephyr Cochran, because what, he, what does he say when they doesn't leave tell that anybody planet? about Zephyr Cochran. He says not a word. Yep. There, and, and there's a whole bunch of things. Like when when I got a bologna to eat when we were back in time with Edith Keeler, what food did I get for you? You know what I mean? Right, like there's so right. many things that Kirk and, and Spock know that nobody else knows. Sure, sure. Actually, you know? that would have been like, like when Spock says all these moments were recorded and could have become known to you, you know, and then Kirk says something like from city or like you said, all I say is like Zach Cochran and that prompts Spock to do the mind meld to confirm it. Yeah. I mean, there, there's so many things that didn't go in the Star Trek record. Yeah. <laughs> they could have done. Uh, but then Kirk says, you are closer to the captain than anyone in the universe. You know, his thoughts. What does your telepathic mind tell you now? And then Spock goes over. Gives him the gives her the mind meld. It's like a mini mind meld because he doesn't do the full. Our minds are one. You right. know, he doesn't do that whole thing. We don't have a lot of music, but you know why he doesn't do all that? He doesn't need to. He doesn't need to. Yeah, he just goes. I believe you. Bam. Doctor McCoy may be of help. Come with me. And Galway goes. You're asking me to violate the captain's orders. He is not the captain. You're as mad as she is. Which I think at this point, it makes way more sense for Spock to leave. Right. You know, I think that Spock's move at this moment is a stupid move. It, it, it is, absolutely. Uh, if he would have left and sort of calculated his next move in a, in a subtle way to yeah. not arouse suspicion. Yeah. But instead of doing what he does is as he's sort of, he tries to fake out Galloway and he goes to pull, to do the neck pinch, yep. the FSNP on Galloway. And Galloway sees, and this is the first time this ever really happened. Yeah. Like he pushes Spock's hand away and screams out, Security guard! And Spock winds up giving him the, the neck pinch anyway. I went, Galway's pretty cool. Like, that, Galway that, was like a cool like security yeah. guard. He was actually a security guard who was doing his job. He was doing his job. And then they they walk out the uh, the, the door to, the, to the, the hall, and the other security guard is there. Spock gives him the neck pinch, too. And then Kirk descends on them. Uh, with a bunch of other red shirts. A repetition of your physical violence is not called for, sir. No physical resistance will be offered. And then Kirk gets on the PA and says, First Officer Spock has been placed under arrest. He has conspired with Dr. Lester to take over the ship from your captain. Which is a very weird phrase that Kirk would never have used. Mm -hmm. And he says, A hearing will be immediately convened to consider the charges and specifications of a general court martial on the charge of mutiny. And that brings us to the end of Act 3. And now we enter the last act of the original series. The last act of the original series on Enterprise Incidents, and away we go. Spock is on the witness stand, and Scotty is asking him questions. Surely you must have more than that to go on. I am serious and don't call me sure. <laughs> um, so the evidence of, of, of Spock's telepathic connection doesn't seem to mean a lot. You've had a great deal of evidence. 
except that of the chief witness. The one who should be the real subject of this investigation is kept locked away and in isolation. Why? She's dangerously insane. Has there been any evidence that she's dangerously insane? Not, not since they were on the Enterprise. Yeah. But all the scenes filmed in the briefing room, this court-martial scene, were filmed on day six of the production. So right near the end. Right near the end. Um, that is interesting. It would, and it was after the stuff on the bridge. After the stuff on the bridge. So this is the last scenes of Sulu and Chekhov. Yes, that is correct. Have you ever been on a movie set? I don't know how much they do it on TV because TV is handled differently where you you finish shooting a particular character's scenes in the film. There's a tradition. I don't know when it started, but most movie sets will say, and that is a wrap on George Takei. And then everyone applauds because that's their last moment in the movie. And I don't know if they had those moments. I don't know if they had them because at this point, they still didn't know. They don't know officially yet. If the, if the series yeah, was going to so be canceled probably, completely. So it probably ends with a whimper. Right. Mm-hmm. She is dangerous only to your authority, sir. The sirs and captains are used really well, I think, mm-hmm. by, particularly by Spock. The witness, sir. Bring on the witness. Let your officers put the questions. I think Nemo's really good in this episode. Yeah, he is. And what's really well done also in this episode is watching the reactions around the room to Spock, and in particular to Kirk's behavior. And also Chekhov and Sulu are standing right next yep. to each other. We have Dr. Lester, and she sits down in a very sort of masculine way, I think, in the witness chair. And Kirk basically pretends to act nice to her. Yeah, he says, I'll, I'll try not to upset you. Yeah. <laughs> Lester's like, okay. <laughs> you uh, claim that, uh, <laughs> that you are Captain James T. Kirk. And what is her response? No. I am not Captain Kirk. That is very apparent. I claim that whatever it is that makes James Kirk a living being special to himself is being held here in this body. Just like I said that Kirk has no idea, Kirk Lester has no idea what they're dealing with when it came to Spock, Kirk also has no idea who he's dealing with when it comes to Lester Kirk. Right. The reason I say that is because Kirk in the past, from what we have seen throughout this series, you're talking about a character who inspired Mirror Spock to consider a revolution to the Empire. You're talking about a character who inspired Nomad, among other computers, to destroy itself. You're talking about a character going back to the second pilot who inspired Dr. Daner to turn on his friend, Gary Mitchell. Lester, inside Kirk's body, has no idea who he's dealing with. I think that's absolutely true. It's funny, as you were speaking and I was thinking about, one of the key things about Kirk is that he remains calm in a completely insane situation. And all of those examples you just gave are examples of that. And it brought me, in my brain, just immediately goes to one of my favorite poems, which is Rudyard Kipling's If, you know, which starts, the first line is, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. Oh, good line. Well, if if is one of the great stirring poems about leadership and honor and all this great stuff, you know. It was brought about by a violent attack by Dr. Lester and the use of equipment she discovered on Camus too. Violence by the lady perpetrated on Captain Kirk 
not only do I think that is totally sexist in the 23rd century, I think it's totally sexist today, and I think it was totally sexist in the 60s. It is possible for a woman to assault a man, you know? Sure. Like, if Kirk's not looking, yeah, he's bigger and stronger than Dr. Lester, but that doesn't mean she can't kill him from behind. Right. You know, like, it's just not, it's just really a ridiculous thing. And Kirk goes on with his, again, dripping with sarcasm. I asked the assembled personnel to look at Dr. Janice Lester and visualize that historic moment. And again, it's all about the reaction shots. It's all about Chekhov and Sulu and Scotty and McCoy all observing this person behaving this way. To get the power she craved, to attain a position she doesn't merit by temperament or training. And most of all, she wanted to murder James Kirk. A man who once loved her. But her intense hatred of her own womanhood made life with her impossible. Her intense hatred of her own womanhood. Why does does Janice Lester hate being a woman? Well, and this is where we go to, like, again, I don't, I'm not going to delve into the politics of what we would say about that today. Mm-hmm. Because I would have very different feelings about someone who didn't feel like they were in the gender of their birth right. today. Mm-hmm. But well, the way it comes off in this episode is just, ugh. Yeah, cringe-inducing. There is only one issue here. Is the story of life entity transfer believable? And then he turns to the crew. And again, I like this part, this thing that Spock does here. He says, This crew has been to many places in the galaxy. They've been witness to many strange events. They are trained to know that what seems to be impossible often is possible, given the scientific analysis of the phenomenon. That line could have been written knowing that this was the last episode that they were going to do. Yeah. And Mr. Spock, have you ever heard of a case such as described by Dr. Janice Lester? Not precisely, no. And I wrote, well, in both What Little Girls Are Made Of and iMud, we talk about complete life essence transfer into an android. Right, that's true. We know that that's true. In Return to Tomorrow, we transfer their life essences into these glowing balls and other sure. people transfer and take over to their bodies. And then to a lesser extent, we have people merging their consciousness in other bodies in metamorphosis. In Wolf in the Fold, we have someone taking over people's bodies. And in Is There in Truth No Beauty, we have two consciousnesses living in the same body. What? Wow. Amazing. That is truly amazing. Bravo, Steve Morris. Well, Bravo. <laughs> well, and this is like you could have brought that stuff up. Like, dude, you were living in a glowing ball while some other guy was in your in your body a long time ago, but you probably don't remember that because you're Janice Lester. Right, exactly. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Assuming that you are correct in your belief, do you expect Starfleet Command to place this uh, person in command of the Enterprise? I expect only to reveal the truth. And then Kirk really loses it. And with the truth revealed that I am not really the captain, and knowing that she would not be allowed to serve as the captain, then you would be the captain. It is inevitable. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's starting to lose his cool. What's funny, though, is that this is the deadly years, where Kirk, on trial for whether or not he is competent to be captain, attacks Spock and says, you would be the captain. You're trying to take over to be captain. Oh, right, right. But in this case, it's Lester who's really doing that. Spock, give it up. Return to the Enterprise family. All charges will be dropped. And the, the madness that temporarily overcame all of us on Camus 2 will fade and be forgotten. And what will become of Dr. Lester? Dr. Lester will be cared for, always. It is a debt and a responsibility I owe her from the past. 
he's not going to take care of her. He's going to kill her. Right, exactly. And then Spock, very strongly, and this it's so funny, like, here's good writing. Here's cringe writing. Here's thing that doesn't make sense. Here's another good line. I shall not withdraw a single charge that I have made. You are not Captain Kirk. You have ruthlessly appropriated his body, but the life entity within you is not that of Captain Kirk. You do not belong in charge of the Enterprise, and I shall do everything in my power against you. Great line. Uh-huh. Great line. Delivered really well. Mm-hmm. So great, in fact. Lieutenant Lisa, play back those last two sentences from Mr. Spock's tirade. Uh, which they do, and Kirk's, he's around the bend, says, It is mutiny! Deliberate, vindictive, insane at his base! And he's pounding the table. It's like going to whom gods destroy with Lord Garth. Lord Garth. Pounding his feet. And, yeah. you know, it's it's that level of stuff. And, well, and this is the thing. This is where Kirk is totally going too far for me. I don't like this. I mean, like, I understand he's playing a character and the character is a crazy person. But I, it's this level of Shatner acting that I don't like. See, I, I agree with you. But at the same time, Lester is so completely insane that... By this point in Kirk's body, like she, she can't be cool. She can't be restrained like Kirk would be. And yeah, it's it's over the top. It's over the top. And this is sort of the hammy, hammy over the topness that people often criticize about about Shatner's acting, especially from the third season onward. Um, but I think it's it's a go for broke performance. You, everything you say is perfectly true, and that is exactly what is happening. And that is exactly what Shatner's playing. And if I had been the director, and if I had any ability to direct Shatner at this moment in the last episode of the show that's being canceled, when we know he's exerted tons of control to to the level the director said, I never want to work there again, Mm -hmm. I would push as hard as I could to pull this performance back. I get it. Sure. And, And part of it is I think it's a more... Kirk is so crazy that the decision that the crew is going to make to mutiny is obvious. Of course that's not Captain. Of course He's acting completely insane. Yeah, there's no way that's him. If he pulled it back, if Dr. Lester pulled it back, then there'd be more conflict between Sulu and Chekhov. Then there'd be more like, wait, I'm not 100% sure, and that would make the whole thing more dramatic. He's not, he's not giving any of the crew members no. uh, to, a, a chance to have any doubt at all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I agree. You're right. Um. I mean, if he, like, for instance, so, so one of the things you do when you're giving a direction is you, you tend to give active words. So you generally don't go be angry or be sad. That's kind of hard to play. Mm. But you might say, discover, you discover something at this moment, or you're questioning something, or you want to um, seduce someone into this idea. If he said, instead of freaking out on the it's mutiny line, if he said, it's, that's mutiny, it's deliberate, vindictive. It's insane at its base. And like it's trying to persuade the other people and and shocked that Spock, oh my God, Spock, I can't believe you're doing this. If those, if you use those motivations, then he would be bringing the other rest of the crew into the moment with him and be persuasive. It would, it would provide more conflict among the crew. Right. Like it would be actually divided into camps, like people who are on Kirk's side, people who are against right. him. But at the same time, the, the, the fact that, that Kirk can't even hold it together at this moment just shows how just shows Lester's inability to ever be a captain. Well, and th- and again, and this goes to the inherent sexism I think of the episode because and it's like what I said about Lord Garth is that the you could have a crazy person who's still very much in control. You know, Hannibal Lecter being a great example of someone who's terrifying 
they're insane, but they really know what they're doing. Right. Mm. Is that what they said is, though, Lester is an inco- incompetent nut job. You know, it's it's ridiculous as opposed to this is a dangerous person, mm-hmm. which, right. which he's not. But he insists that we're going to have a recess and then we're going to have an immediate vote on the topic of mutiny. And it's later on and we're out in the corridor and Scotty walks up to McCoy. I love that Jimmy Doohan gets this scene. Yeah, it's great. I, it's a really good scene. Doctor, I've seen the captain feverish, sick, drunk, delirious, terrified, overjoyed, boiling mad. But up to now, I have never seen him red-faced with hysteria. Great line. And not only does Scotty have this great, this, this excellent moment in this episode, but for an episode that has its flaws, Chekhov and Sulu have their moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only person who doesn't have their moment from the regular crew is Uhura, because Michelle yeah. wasn't in the episode. Yeah. Even Chapel has her moment. Yep. And McCoy is sort of arguing that we don't have good evidence, which I don't buy at all. I don't think that I really don't think in this episode they really get McCoy right because I think he would be like absolute. McCoy's not a guy who cares about the rules. McCoy's like, no, this is wrong. That guy's acting crazy. Yep. They're going to call for the vote in a few minutes. Let me put one last question. Suppose you vote with me in favor of Spock. That means two votes to one and Spock is free. What do you think the captain will do? I think Scotty's amazing in this scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It'll stick in his craw. He'll never accept it. We don't know that. I tell you, he won't. Then, Doctor, that's the time we move against him. We'll have to take over the ship. I don't know if I quite believe them saying this at this moment, but I do really like the scene. We're talking about mutiny, Scotty. Aye. It's a beautifully played scene. Like I said, I don't quite believe where McCoy's character is at this point, but I think they do it great. And they walk into the room, and there are all these looks, and Kirk says, Play the tapes of the conversation in the corridor. No privacy. <laughs> yep. Yeah, really. Now, did they all just listen to them having this conversation, everyone who was in this room? I think so. I think so, yeah. Yeah. And they replay the tape? Yeah, that's enough. We know what was said. Enough to convict you of conspiracy with mutineers. And you're so charged. The sentence, death. And then Chekhov and Sulu jump up. Starfleet expressly forbids the death penalty. All my senior officers turning against me? The death penalty is forbidden. There's only one exception. General Order 4. It has not been violated by any officer on the Enterprise. Now you're tying it back to the menagerie and the cage. Well, and and the thing, too, I I really do think they really, just like we said, they kind of play fast and loose with the log and play fast and loose with various regulations. It's like... What exactly are the powers of a captain? You know, like when we had the court-martial of Spock in Menagerie, we had to have at least three people of command rank. Right. Now we're having a court-martial of Spock, and there's no three people of command rank. You know, we're talking about, like, there's, and and honestly, Kirk is left, let off murderers and all sorts of horrible people and not brought them to trial or had any, just on his own authority. So we're pretty all over the place on what exactly captains can do. I am responsible. Execution will be immediate. Go to your posts. And they don't go. And he says, go to your posts. Take a little break. Prepare for execution. Wow. And Kirk's left alone looking just totally crazed. We're on the bridge. And I agree. I love, A, I love that we have this last scene with Chekhov and Sulu. And B, I really love what they gave to Sulu. Captain Kirk would order an execution even if he were going mad. That cannot be the captain. 
What difference does it make who he is? Are we going to allow an execution to take place? I, I just love that this, they had, there's this moment, it's like in the last episode, where Kirk isn't on the bridge, Spock isn't on the bridge, and they're all just like talking. You know, like if you're in a conference room and the boss walks out and everybody goes, can you believe what, what are you going to do that? You know what I mean? Like, I just love that they're showing the interplay with each other for a change because you don't get to see that very often. Well, and then you have this moment, Chekhov says, if security backs him up, how will we fight him? I'll fight them every way and any way I can. Great moment. It's a great moment. It particularly is great because I think the person giving the most short shrift in the series from where they started is Sulu. Like Sulu in the first 10 episodes is a really big character. And really he's the number three. It's not Kirk, then Spock, then Scotty. It's Kirk, then Spock, then Sulu. Well, up until Mirror Mirror, Sulu was was a great character who, yeah. who was right up there, you know, yeah. uh, with, with m- maybe matching Scotty, but certainly in the first season, maybe succeeding Scotty in terms of his significance and importance on the show. But what happened was George left for all those right. episodes to film the Green Berets. And when he came back, a, you know, a, not only did Chekhov have more time to like make his own mark on the show and on the bridge, but the character of Sue was never the same. So to see, to see Sulu go out in this way, to see George Takei have this moment is really, really fine. Well, and I think it's, and of course, none of this is planned, of course, and there's other reasons why what happened happened, but I think it this makes it make a lot of sense why Sulu is the guy captaining his own ship mm-hmm. later on yeah. in Star Trek. Sure. Because he, he shows real leadership here. And Kirk enters. Mr. Sulu, lock into coordinates as soon as orbit is accomplished. Interment will take place on Benicia. And Sulu and Chekhov take their hands off the controls. At the same time. Uh-huh. You will obey my orders. We'll be charged with mutiny. You will obey my orders or... He's freaking out. And then something hits him. And we get that weird Shatner physical acting that I'm really sick of. This, this moment when the transference is starting to be broken and Kirk with Lester inside of him is losing control. And yeah, it's it's as over the top as Shatner ever got. Yeah. And it's right. it's a bit much. It is very much it's more than a bit much. Yeah. In my mind. Yeah. It's much. It's it's way much. It's full much. So while the scene was being filmed, like I said, all the scenes on the bridge were filmed on day four and day five. So this is day five. So this scene where Kirk is losing control, Gene Rodbury stopped by the set on this day and he brought he brought a friend with him. That friend was O.J. Simpson. Wow. So the scenes where Kirk is totally losing it and he's flinching and he does that freeze and then he finally gets back control. Lester gets back control of Kirk's body and Kirk gets up and he walks off the bridge. Gene Rodbury said to O.J. Simpson, now that is an actor at work. Also, on this day, day five of the filming of Turnabout Intruder, is when NBC decided that this would be the last episode of the season. Mm. That meant that the episode order was cut back from 26 episodes to 24. Now, episode 25 of the third season was supposed to be an episode called The Joy Machine, which William Shatner was supposed to direct. So on this day, they came in and they told him, 
This is the last episode of the season. So not only was Shatner disappointed that this was the last episode of the season, but it also meant that he would not get to make his directorial debut on a Star Trek episode. He was right about to go into pre-production on the Joy Machine, and it was taken from him. So he had the flu, the show's getting canceled, and he he loses his gig first directing. He loses his chance to direct his first TV episode. Okay, I have to go back to something you said before. So what day did O.J. Simpson come onto the set? Day five. So that's like the 4th, 3rd or 4th of January? Uh, okay, uh, that's probably, yeah. Uh, well, I would say maybe even January 6th or 7th. So that's just a few. You know what, what O.J. Simpson was doing on January 1st, just a few days before? What was that? He was playing in the Rose Bowl. Because, as I mentioned, Ohio State beat USC in the Rose Bowl. That was his game as a senior. He rushed for 171 yards, including an 80-yard touchdown just a few days before. And to be real clear, we might have a lot of opinions about O.J. Simpson. In 1969, he was the most important college football player in the country, I think, bar none. So him showing up on the the set of Star Trek a few days later is actually kind of a big deal. For a moment, I, I thought I was up on the bridge. Perhaps you were. Well, if it happens again, I'll fight to stay there. The bridge is where you belong. I was expecting Scotty to say, the bridge is where you belong, lass. <laughs> but it's Captain Kirk, so he can't call Captain well, Kirk and the, lass. The big thing I'm thinking <laughs> is, if there's anybody who knows how to fight to stay in their body and control their body, it is Captain Kirk. Right. Because he has done it before in The Enemy Within and all sorts of other places. Great point. And this is where I really wish that... Dr. Lester, the Captain Kirk inside Dr. Lester's body, had taken over and said, here's what we're going to do and come up with a plan and been the leader of this group, which they don't do. Yeah, right. There's just Kirk does nothing. Nobody does anything really to save this. It just happens. You know, there no one does anything smart at all. Right. Like where was the moment where Kirk inside Lester's body? The next time this happens, do this. Like, 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 oh. Like, this could be broken. Like, let's seize the opportunity. Instead, it just happens, and the day is saved, and everything is fine. Well, it's sort of, you know what I would have loved to have? Because it's so funny. We just talked about how, uh, I forget which episode we were in, when we were like, man, they really need to work out this whole auxiliary control thing. It was in The Way to Eat. The Way to Eat. Everyone's always taking over the ship. This would have been a great time for Dr. Lester leading McCoy, Spock, and Scotty to go to auxiliary control and take over the ship and knock and and show, like, this is what the captain of the Enterprise can do. Right. You're right. You know? Yeah, it's a missed opportunity to show that even though Kirk is in Lester's body, he's still Captain Kirk. He's still Captain Kirk. Yep. I will not go back to being Janice Lester. You must help me prevent it. The only way to prevent the transference is by the death of Janice Lester. You must carry out the execution. You kill her. No, you kill her. <laughs> Yeah, they really thought this through. <laughs> he goes, well, and this is the other thing. It's like they're such terrible. Their plan is terrible. I have done everything else for you. But I will not murder for you. Then do it for yourself. It's like, look, you already had. I don't know. How many people did they kill on canon? Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's you're, They're way past the point yeah. of no return on this. If Kirk doesn't die, we'll both be exposed as murderers. Does that give you any choice? Okay. What does Kirk do when he makes this comment to Coleman? Touches him. Right. Yeah. This moment where Kirk leans in 
And William Shatner gently puts his hand on Harry Landry's shoulder. It was improvised. Mm. It was improvised by Shatner. Again, a subtle feminine touch. And it was not scripted, but it's a great choice and acting choice on Shatner's part. I, I, again, Shatner is awesome in this episode, I think. Were Coleman and Dr. Janice Lester lovers? I have another question. Okay. okay, all right. Were they lovers? I think they were. I think they were. Okay. But the question is, how does, how does Coleman resolve his love for Lester after the transfers? Like, will she love Lester in Kirk's body? And totally. what does that say about Coleman's, you know, his own orientation? Well, well, and this is the thing is like that. That's why I brought it up. Is is these are all the things that the episode kind of brings up, but really isn't dealing with. Mm-hmm. Like, if this been a next generation show, like there's the episode of Next Gen where um, Crusher falls in love with the symbiont, who then ends up in a female body, right. and it's sort of. Or there's the episode where Riker, which I love, where Riker develops a relationship with the asexual species mm. you know and those are episodes and and I, there's no way that a show in 1968 69 is going to jump into those issues that's never gonna that wasn't gonna happen right but but it's like if you introduce an idea you kind of have to deal with it a little bit and they're really not mm-hmm. i also think it's interesting again it goes back to the man trap in the man trap you have someone who is in love with this woman in that case the woman gets killed but is replaced by someone who can become that woman and any other woman and he's still clearly in love with that salt creature in some way yeah. and here even though that creature is killing people here you have a similar situation where coleman on some level is clearly in love with lester even in captain kirk's body exactly and is willing to do all sorts of horrible stuff for this person. Well, and the other question too, that again, they don't get into all at all. Does Janice Lester care at all about Coleman? I'm going to guess not really. I don't think so. No, I because think so. I, I think that Lester is still in love with Kirk. Yeah. Coleman grabs a phaser, hands it to Kirk, grabs a hypo. We're going to have a doubly lethal dose just in case. To prevent any further conspiracy, you'll be removed to separate cells. If there's any resistance... You'll be given a sedative until you learn cooperation. Then we're going to take Dr. Lester first. Dr. Lester walks out, and as soon as she's out of frame, we hear... Kill him! Kill him! Go! And then gets hit again with the thing. And this if, if the one on the bridge was ridiculous and over the top, <laughs> this is like at a whole other level of silliness that he's doing. I, I got to say that between the scene on the bridge... When the transference is almost broken, and this scene now where the transference is transference is being broken, I have seen that meme, that that gif, yeah, so many times on like Facebook and Twitter it's, and all yeah. those things. It's used all the time. Well, and you know, if you're gonna judge Shatner, then the, pick, this is the one to pick. I yeah, think, exactly. Maybe more than anything, anything else. But they switch back. Which again is what I mean by nobody did anything smart to this just happened. Right. It just they just got lucky. Yep. And then what I do like is that Kirk now in his own body comes over and very gently disarms Janice Lester. And and whereas the Kirk as Lester was brutal, this right. one is gentle. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, wigging out, just I want to be the captain. I want right. to be the it's I all lost the James Kirk. Yeah. How about you dead? And Coleman says You are. You are as I loved you. 
What do you think of this moment? Uh, it's weird. It's weird. Yeah. yeah it, it's it's well, and then and then we kind of go. Can, there, there's like a sense. Does he put them in? Do, do they get punished, Coleman and Doctor Lester? Well, well, Coleman says I'd like to take care of her. Yeah. And then McCoy says, "Of course, follow me." Uh, so, so you let Coleman off the hook. I mean, he was part of uh, the killing murder. all these people, people and taking over the Enterprise, and yeah. o- and almost kill. He was about to kill. He was uh, conspiring Kirk. to kill Kirk, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they. I think that that McCoy is just telling them what they want, what he wants to hear. But I think absolutely no way does Coleman get off the hook on this. It, it, it's a. I think the thing they're going for is. Dr. Lester, pretending to be Kirk, forced McCoy to work with Coleman. And now the real Kirk, with a look, is saying, it's not the same thing, but could you help them out in a way that's more Kirk-like? And McCoy sees that look and goes, okay, yeah, you know. But I don't think it plays right. Right. I I don't think it plays right. I didn't want to destroy her. I'm sure we all understand that, Captain. Her life could have been as rich as any woman's. If only... If only those are the last words ever spoken in an original series Star Trek episode. And it took many, many years, decades even, for me to consider the profound significance of those final words. If only. And I went, those are Kirk's last. And the last words are spoken by, by Shatner. The Shat- and it was Shatner who this show was. He was the star of the show. Yeah. Okay. And his last words are, "If only." Think about it. If only Star Trek had been given a better time slot in the third season. If only it it got that time slot and Roddenberry came back as the day to day showrunner that he was in the first half of the first season. If only. NBC and Paramount had more confidence in the show to give the series the budget that it needed, a bigger budget from the first season instead of the dwindling budget it got by the final season. If only Gene Kuhn and Roddenberry had gotten along better and Kuhn stayed on. So many if-onlys. So many if-onlys. Yet, despite that, the series ended after three seasons. The third season ended on a Relative whimper, uh, the, especially the second half of the third season. The quality had dropped big time. The ratings had dropped, and it just was it just was a shadow of its former self. You had some great moments, a couple good episodes here or there, but if only, if only, if only, and it stayed if only until Star Trek returned, at least as a live action form, on December seventh, nineteen seventy nine, with Star Trek the Motion Picture, and I say that as we record this episode on December 7th, 2022. Wow. So, so many if-onlys. And for the remastered version, because, you know, back then, like you pointed out, TV shows did not get a series or a season finale like they do now. So in order to give it a touch of finality for the original series, Mike Akuda and Denise Akuda and Dave Rossi, who produced the remastered versions of the show with the new visual effects had the enterprise going off into space. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, produced by Fred Freiberger, executive produced by Gene Roddenberry, but for the new visual effects 
the Enterprise flies off towards a star cluster and a nebula. It's a really beautiful, like, final image to give it, like, some kind of finality, at least for the original series. But the other thing I wanted to point out is that in the James Blish novel, for uh, not the photo not novel, the photo novel, not the photo novel, the James Blish novel that did like the, the adaptations of the episodes. So it was in Star Trek Five was the number of the book. Uh, we find out that Doctor Coleman's uh, first name is actually Howard, not Arthur, uh, probably from an earlier draft of the script. But at the end of the episode, like we saw, Kirk muses about Janice Lester. Her life could have been as rich as any woman's, if only, if only. In the James Blish adaptation, Spock finishes the sentence, adding, if only she had been able to take pride in being a woman. Hmm. That line was not used in the, in the filmed episode. Presumably, it was in an earlier draft because oftentimes James Blish adapted these stories not from the finished episodes right. but from drafts so he probably was working from an early draft where spock had that line so another thing that's worth mentioning is that when star trek the next generation passed the 79 episode mark because you know that went on for 176 episodes right. the episode was called legacy and there was a captain's log from picard where he said that the Enterprise was bypassing a mission to Camus 2. Oh, All right? that's interesting. So he's mentioning Camus 2 because that was the planet in the beginning of Turnabout Intruder. But he was bypassing that planet because they were, going on. they were bypassing the original series. Right. Very interesting. That is interesting. Uh -huh. I never knew that one. Um, what did people have to say about, I'm sure that we got a lot to say, not just about this episode. Well, yes, a lot, and it's all bittersweet. James Dewan said regarding Turnabout Intruder, believe me, we knew it was our last episode. The mood was not an upbeat one. George Takei said, at the rap party, we ate too much, we drank too much, and we kissed and hugged a lot. Hmm. Nichelle Nichols said, in the third season, producer Fred Freiberger did everything he could to shore up the show. I know that some fans hold him responsible for the show's decline, but that's not fair. Star Trek wasn't in a disintegrating orbit before Freiburger came aboard. That we were able to do what we did in that third season is a miracle and a credit to him. Hmm. In a 1991 interview done with our friend Ed Gross, who joins us for a piece of the action, Fred Freiburger said, I thought the worst experience of my life was when I was shot down over Nazi Germany in World War II. A Jewish boy from the Bronx parachuting into the middle of 80 million Nazis. How's that for perspective? Then I joined Star Trek. <laughs> I was in a prison camp for only two years. But my travail with Star Trek has lasted for 25 years and counting. Wow. This was back in 1991. Wow. I feel bad for him. <laughs> Just because people blame him for the end of Star Trek? Correct. Yeah. For the declining quality and everything. Leonard Nimoy. I had mixed emotions about the cancellation. I felt tired and drained. It had become a battle to maintain the quality of the show. We were not having great success with the episodes in the third season. I felt a great sense of entrapment because I was under contract if they wanted to do more into a fourth season. 
I wasn't looking forward to it through fear of losing quality. You hate to see anything good die, but on the other hand, you hate to see anything good piddle its way into mediocrity or worse. And that is why, I mean, Nimoy hit it on the head. I'm glad Star Trek was not renewed for a fourth season because I think by that point, it would have uh, diluted the greatness of the overall series that we had for those three seasons. Last word goes to, of course, William Shatner, who said the final frontier had finally been reached. Looking back, I remember feeling very sad that the series was finished. We had a party where we all tried to make the best of a bittersweet situation. At the time, we thought Star Trek was over and out of our lives forever. Who would have guessed that what we were involved in was just the beginning of an ongoing epic? I, for one, feel extremely proud and thankful to have been a part of it. And as you can see, the legacy lives on. Oh, wow. That's great. I I, I just want to comment on, do I wish there was a fourth season of Star Trek? And of course, a big part of me, like, man, of course I'd want to see more. If there were more Mirror Mirrors and more Doomsday Machines and more Balance of Terrors, absolutely, of course I want to see that. But I th- I've thought a lot about regrets and what it means to walk around with regrets. And the reality is, even though I personally have made all sorts of decisions that I, that I wish I'd made other decisions, I don't regret where I am. And I don't regret who I am. And how, and, and how I, who I am is part of all those things that maybe weren't such great experiences in the past. I can't be unhappy about where Star Trek ended up. No, absolutely And not. if there's a fourth season, there might not be a motion picture. And if there's no motion picture and definitely no Wrath of Khan... There's no next gen and beyond. There's no Star Trek. It's not just there's no next gen and beyond. There literally, there's no Star Trek. Right. You know what I mean? It is It is what it is. Like And, it, and what it was... Flaws and all. I mean, it's like the fact that there are all sorts of things that are important pieces of continuity introduced in weird places like the Savage Curtain. That's what Star Trek is. And so I'm kind, even though I wish I could have more episodes, I'm kind of with you. Yeah. I'm happy with how we ended up. It, it just, the, the odds of Star Trek coming back for a fourth season and returning to what it was in those first two and a half seasons, because again, the first half of season three was really, really good. The odds of it returning to that consistent quality under the circumstances, let's say Freiberger came back to produce for a fourth season. What if they got someone else? Yep. I, I doubt that Roddenberry would have come back at this point. The budgets aren't going up. The budgets weren't going to go up. I mean, Paramount by this point... Uh, uh, we pointed out in an earlier episode of Enterprise Incidents, the parent wanted to be done with this. Yeah, They did not have confidence in this. And the fans, despite their best efforts to pull another pull off another letter-writing campaign like they did to save the series from a second season to a third season, they're like, nope, sorry, you had your chance. You know, you got this much. Be happy with what you got. I am happy with what you got because you and I have talked many times off camera that the ratio of good Star Trek to bad Star Trek for the original series is absolutely impressive. Yes, there are some bad episodes, most of them towards the end of the third season, but there are so many good ones that hold up 
to this very day. It's really, really incredible when you look at the impact of this three-season show. And here we are dissecting it to within an inch of its life. And it holds up under that kind of scrutiny. I don't even think that the other Star Trek shows could, be, could, could hold the same claim like the original series does. I 100% agree. So I guess so, it's time for me to give my final thoughts on Turnabout Intruder. Go right ahead. Uh, I, I, my final thoughts are exactly where we started, is I am surprised at how many moments and scenes and bits of performance and lines I genuinely like in this episode. You know, we talked about Scotty and McCoy in the corridor, all of Spock's performance. I'm going to say parts of Shatner's performance, I agree with you, are really good and parts are just <laughs> dreadful. Thematically, the cringe-worthy stuff in this episode kills it for me. Yeah, I agree. And I just and so what I I you know it's like I don't know that I would do this, but I can't see myself going. Hey, I'm going to watch Turnabout a Tutor again. I can see myself watching a couple of the scenes, you know. But in the end, this this might be the most anti Star Trek philosophically and thematically episode of the entire original series. I agree completely. Yeah. I agree completely. This episode threatens to undo so much of what the rest of the series did. Yep. You know, when I said that uh, there are moments where I wish I could erase Turnabout Intruder from existence, I mean it. And going through this deep dive and and the, some of the di some of the dialogue, it just it, it, it's so dated and it's so cringe inducing, and it gets worse as the years have progressed. And when people point to the original series as being sexist, sure, I mean, whether it's the miniskirts or some of the other some of the other things that have happened in other episodes, sure, I get it, but you can't judge judge a series produced in 1966 through the eyes of 2022. It's not fair. But in this episode, absolutely you can, because even by 1968, 1969 standards, this this dialogue is 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 reprehensible. Yeah. And I and I hate it. But after this conversation, here we are. We have established throughout the course our journey on Enterprise Incidents. We have established a mythology to the original series, a serialized way of looking at the show, and it works. Uh, we have established motives, uh, evolutions of character traits and certainly themes, and it plays out in such a way where you would think that they actually did have this in mind. And the progression, the progressive nature, the forward-thinking ideals of Star Trek. And, and so much of this episode actually does feel like, you know what, this is the last one. Let's put this line in there, like the line that Spock says about the crew being together for all this time. And the, the, the chronology references that, that Lester as Kirk you know, makes in the, in the, 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 the sickbay, uh, I love those moments. I love that scene on the bridge before Kirk will send the bridge between uh, Chekhov and Sulu. And I do think that Shatner's performance really sells it for the most part. But it's still not a great episode. It's not as bad as In the Children Shall Eat or The Way to Eden. Uh, well, no, actually, I like The Way to Eden after that deep dive. The Mark of Gideon, it's better than I remember, but it's also as bad as I remember for these moments. Yeah. So... I'm going to say it for the last time as we're talking about an episode of the original series. That is what we think of Turnabout Intruder. Oh. We'd love to hear your thoughts. We would love you to visit us on our Facebook page. 
What do you think of Shatner's performance? What do you think of these themes in this episode? Uh, and if you keep, don't don't do the Facebook thing, we are Enter Incidents on Twitter. We're Enterprise Incidents on Instagram. And of course, as Scott said at the beginning, you can support the show by looking at those show notes, clicking on the link for Anchor, and you could support the show. It would be a big help to us. And please leave those reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you want to reach me, you could do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And I was thinking, since I am so against the sort of anti-feminist views expressed by this episode, I would mention some movies that had great, strong, powerful female leads. And I'm looking through the list of the cinephiles. Man, it's amazing how few movies we've done that have great, powerful leads. Wow. And that's just a sign, A, that we as on the cinephiles have to do better of exploring those films. And also, most of the movies made by Hollywood for the last hundred years are about dudes. But I'll give you a couple of them. Of course, four films by James Cameron, Terminator 1 and Terminator 2. Oh, actually, three films by James Cameron, Terminator 1 and Terminator 2, and Aliens. And Alien, of course, by Ridley Scott, have great female leads. There's A League of Their Own, Penny Marshall's film. Million Dollar Baby has an incredible central female character along with Clint Eastwood. And then this one is not actually a woman, but it's certainly dealing with these issues of what it is to be a woman or even a man in a woman's body, and that is... Dustin Hoffman in the Sidney Pollock film. Tootsie. Tootsie. I'm so glad you mentioned Aliens, one of my favorite movies of all time. Ripley, certainly by Aliens, the second film, uh, established that character as one of my favorite movie characters ever, ever. Uh, and absolutely, I, I agree with all those assessments. And I love Tootsie. It's one of my favorite movies. Make sure you follow me on Twitter at MovieMance. And once again, please go to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents on Facebook. Follow our Facebook page because Enterprise Incidents will continue. You know, we talked about this before, but yes, Enterprise Incidents will continue with deep dives into the animated series. Now, before you think, what, the animated series? Well, first of all, you have a series that won an Emmy, okay? Uh, the, the animated series won a daytime uh, Emmy for Best Children's Program. And also, the actors are the actors' voices from the original series. Yep. You also have Gene Roddenberry producing the show. Dorothy Fontana was the story editor. David Gerald wrote two screenplays. Uh, Walter Koenig wrote a screenplay. And Mark Daniels who directed 14 episodes of Star Trek, wrote an episode of the animated series. So absolutely positively, the animated series is worth treating as canon. It is canon. It's where we find out that James T. Kirk's middle name is Tiberius. And we're going to have great guests on the animated series. It's going to be a lot of fun. And just like we did with the original series, we are going to try to tie the mythology and the serialized nature of the animated series into what we saw into the original series. So hopefully, just like we did with the original series, with seeing that show in a whole new light, hopefully you will join us for our deep dives into the animated series so you can see us uh, hopefully sh shine a whole new light on the animated series. But before we get, before we get to the animated series, next time on Enterprise Incidents, we are going to do a proper season three wrap up which will also include a series wrap up and the episode of enterprise incidents that we're going to do after our series and season three wrap up is a special episode where my great friend steve morris and i are going to count down our top 10 favorite episodes of the original star trek 
and they're going to be separate lists that might have some common episodes. But what's very special about our our favorite episodes episode of Enterprise Incidents is we are going to record it live on our YouTube page so you can join us while we are doing that. We will make more announcements on that on the Enterprise Incidents Facebook page. So that's another reason why you should please go and like and follow us on Facebook. In the meantime, that brings us to the end of our voyage through the original series. Enterprise Incidents continues next time. So until the next episode of Enterprise Incidents, you guessed it, keep going boldly.